Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters, I'm Farah Feeney. Through conversations with everyday people, Mind and Soul Matters aims to broaden our understanding of mental health and spirituality and to deepen our insights into the challenges and meaning of our lives. For many of us, most of our wake hours are spent at work. Work is considered to be good for our mental health, good for our mind and soul. But a negative working environment where there might be high job demands, poor support or challenging work relationships can lead to mental health problems. We are fortunate to have Dr. Duane Varan, a former professor at Murdoch University and currently the CEO of Media Science, join us today to talk about some of the challenges of workplace management and how these challenges can be overcome to lead to better mental health in the workplace. Welcome, Duane. It's fabulous to have you again on Mind and Soul Matters. It's a joy to be back again. <laughs> Thanks. I have mentioned previously, Duane, that you are one of my favorite public speakers and I love listening to your stories. So let's start with a story, story of how you went from being a university professor to CEO of one of the leading media research firms in the United States. <laughs> Well, you know, these things don't happen in one jump. They always look like that in a way, um, but they don't quite happen that way. There's, a, there's an evolution to, to how things evolve. And certainly that was the case with me as a, a manager, if you will. So as, as you know, I was a professor once upon a time, and uh, the focus of my work was really more teaching. And then research was something that I did as well as an academic, but my, my priority in those days was really teaching. The last episode we did, we talked about, you know, the ethos that I found um, in the Baha'i writings for teaching, which is that, that quote that it was, you know, about that my mission as a teacher was about cultivating environments to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness, that like anybody else who gets a PhD, you're never trained to teach. So you kind of have to figure it out on your own. And that one quote was life transforming for me as a teacher. And it gave me my creed and my, my ethos and my mission. Um, but, of course, as my career evolved, my research came to play a much And I more. have to interrupt there. And it, you won the Prime Minister's Award for the best teacher of the year. Yes, that's... that's... You're too humble to say that, so I wanted to put that in, which is a big deal, yes. No, that, 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 was, uh, that, that was a wonderful journey. Um, but, of course, as my career continued to evolve, research became more prominent and as you do more research and bigger research, it eventually evolves into a research center. It's no longer you just as a lone academic kind of doing your own work. The scale of the projects get, get bigger. You begin building teams, you know. So eventually it got to the point where I had my own building on campus. You know, we were doing millions of dollars of research every year. So obviously that's a large production with many staff. And for me, that meant that I had to learn a new set of skills. And those skills were really around how do I manage a team? And, uh, you know, once again, uh, nobody trained me. Like, it's not like, 
if you start running a research center, there's any kind of training program that you get on how to, how to effectively manage. So you're thrown in the deep end again. And so I had to discover what good management meant. And I started by looking for good books. And one of the things I discovered, which was actually incredibly surprising to me, but there are not actually very good empirically based books on management. If you think about, you know, the management literature, there are thousands of books on effective, what people say is effective management, but they're actually not based on any empirical evidence. They're typically based on something that worked for someone in a very specific kind of situation. I'll, I'll give you an example, which will kind of demonstrate how, how bizarre this is. But one of the books that some people might think of is a book by Rudy Giuliani called Leadership. Under a specific set of circumstances, his style of management was actually incredibly effective. So at 9-11, in that kind of situation, in the midst of that kind of crisis, the ability for somebody to come in, take charge, be a bulldozer, tell people what to do, get the mission done, that was very effective in that very specific context. But that doesn't mean it's going to be effective in other contexts. And this is the problem with management books. Management is very, very, very situational and very anecdotal. So I wanted a book that talked about good management. And, and there was not a book that I could turn to that had good evidence. And of course, you know, part of it was I was also looking for a certain style of management. You know, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take that same creed that worked for teaching and just apply it for management. So in my definition, good management would be about cultivating environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent to human consciousness. And I thought that would work, but it wasn't that simple. It, it didn't work quite like that. And the reason it didn't work was because as a teacher, I had a certain kind of authority. I chose the students that came in my class. I only chose students who were hungry for growth. I didn't choose them on the basis of their grades. I chose them on the basis of their appetite to, to, to change and to grow. I couldn't do that really as a manager. As a manager, you have a team and they don't usually accept your authority. There are limits to that authority. And so you have a challenge. You want them to change. You want them to grow to the task. But if they don't do it, there's really not a lot you can do about it. So this was a huge challenge for me. And the other thing that I didn't understand was that um, you can't define your mission on the basis of your goals. You have to define your mission on the basis of your team and what the skills are that you have within your team. If you don't have certain skills within your team, either you have to bring those skills in or may, you can grow a little, but you can't, you know, you can't get plumbers to do nuclear science. I mean, you know, you're limited to what your skill set is. And I discovered this in, in some really awkward kind of way. So I have to say that my first years as manager of my own research center were pretty catastrophic. I don't think that they were effective. We certainly got the job done but we got the job done in a very uh, inefficient and um, ineffective way. I'll give you an example. When I was building my, my center, my physical building, I put somebody in charge who was very good at project management. But what that meant was he was very good at creating a document trail. He was very good at doing this task in a way which required 
an enormous amount of paperwork, which was fine for the world that he operated within. But he was interfacing with technicians and tradespeople who didn't work that way. They worked with their hands. They didn't work with paper trails. And so there was a very high level of frustration by both parties. He's frustrated because he's asking people for documents and they're not used to producing those and they don't even see the need for producing those documents. The tradespeople are frustrated because they're getting these demands to do things that they don't believe in and they don't understand. So it was just a real train wreck. Here's a person who's a great manager in a specific context, but not in this context. And so these are the kinds of challenges that we face all the time. And the, the key to me turning the, the, the corner, so to speak, in terms of understanding it was actually a book that I read that was based on empirical evidence. And the book is called um, First Break All the Rules. It's written by researchers at the Gallup organization who did surveys with a million employees, did focused interviews with 70,000 of their managers. 70,000? 70,000. Of course, this is teams of people doing the interviews, mm. and then had access to their performance records as well. So now you're able to get data at the individual manager level. You and know, what, what did you find? The, the most important thing that helped me was that you have to be very specific in who you hire. Right. The, the greatest opportunity you have as a manager is that moment when you're hiring people. Once they're part of your team, it's much harder to to give a person a set of skills that they don't have. So what is it at that point you would look for? Exactly. That's the question. The question is, if these are our goals, what are our needs? Not just in terms of skills, but in terms of attitudes. What is it that we're looking for? Let, let me give you an example. At the time, I was hiring my personal assistant at the university. Now, the previous personal assistant I had hired was a person who I hired because she loved my research. When I spoke with her, she loved my research. You know, typically you're looking for very generic things. You want people with good grades. You know, you want, you're hiring kind of like in this very generic way. She stood out because she liked my research. Well, what does that mean? That means that she was a very frustrated personal assistant. She wanted to be a researcher. She didn't want to be a personal assistant. I've put her in this role. I'm making demands of her. I'm expecting her to do things that she doesn't really have a particular passion for. So what I learned after reading that book is I have to know what the traits are, which I'm really looking for. And I know myself well enough to know that I'm very good at weaving chaos. That's my expertise. I create chaos everywhere, right? <laughs> and so what I needed was a person who could find satisfaction in weaving order out of chaos. Right. Once I knew what I was looking for, I could find the perfect hire. And in fact, I did. I had the most amazing PA because she was a person who really found satisfaction in kind of like taking all that chaos that I'm weaving and laying everywhere and, 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 and shaping it and giving it order. So that's the challenge that we have as managers is we need to be careful not to get in the way of them. We need to support them in doing their job. But first, the real opportunity we have is actually in hiring the people who are well-suited to the particular task that we have. And well-suited not just in terms of skills, but well-suited in terms of their traits and attitudes. So we need to know what we're really looking for in the first place. Then once you've done that, it's your mission to get out of the way. So it's your mission then to be sure that the role that you're playing is a support role. So you, it's not my, my, my job then is again, going back to my original quote, to cultivate the environment 
conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. In other words, it's my job to create the environment, to help cultivate the environment that empowers people to then achieve their fullest potential. And that's what we're very good at at Media Science. We're very good at attracting talent. In most cases, this is talent who are not aware of their capacity, not aware of their talent and, and skill sets. But we hire them, we bring them in, and they thrive in our environment because it's our job then to fully support them. And then our capacity as an organization is almost infinite. Right. It's like the sky is the limit once you have a team of people who have this kind of potential that you can then support and cultivate. And I guess that touches, that's already touched on the next question I wanted to ask, Dwayne, in that how would you define successful management and what would be your watchword? So it's a great question. We searched for a watchword. You know, we, we wanted a watchword. We wanted to reduce what our ambition was in management to a single word. And um, so the question is, what is our job as managers? And the, the word we landed on, at least at Media Science, is nurture. Our job as managers is to nurture the talent in our team. And that has actually been a very effective uh, watchword. It's actually been effective in helping define the culture of our management, that our job is to nurture the team. And, and there are images that come to mind. There's a style that comes to mind. I mean, suddenly, when you're armed with that idea to your approach to management, it's very empowering, empowering on both sides, empowering in terms of the manager's side, in terms of understanding what your role is, but also empowering on the employee side in terms of understanding how management can help you. It can help you grow. It can help you build your talent. It can help you build your potential. So suddenly that lays a certain uh, vision of what, uh, of what management is really all about. That's very empowering. Right. So successful management is n being nurturing. What does that look like practically? How do you nurture? Well, let's, let's go the other way. Let's talk about what it doesn't look like. So you, you, you have a problem all the time. There's a gap. There's something that you expect an employee to do. Uh, there's a vision that you have for what the employee could or should do. There's the reality of where the employee is. How do you get from point A to point B? What is the value of scolding? What is the value of demanding? I mean, when you think about what you visualize management as being, usually management is a very frustrating experience, frustrating for both sides, mm -hmm. frustrating for the manager because they have to be this person they don't really like being. I mean, nobody likes telling some people do, I guess, but most people <laughs> don't really like being in this position where they have to tell people off. And also on the other side of it, you know, it's very frustrating as the employee being the recipient of constant, you know, constant bombardment that way. And so, so that I think is not really effective and it's not effective in a lot of ways. Now, sometimes, you know, you have a situation where you just can't make progress. I mean, you try and you can't make progress. And in that scenario, the best thing you can do is part ways. And I, and I have to say that one of the things that will be surprising for people about media science is we are actually very quick to let people go. If somebody is not the right fit, um, and they could not be the right fit for a, a range of reasons. I'll give you an example. I had somebody superstar brilliant, amazing in terms of his intelligence, his brilliance, much, much, much smarter than me, that's for sure. Very smart guy, but a very difficult person to work with. 
And the reason he's difficult to work with is because, you know, with that brilliance comes a need for uh, certain glory, certain gratification, and, and that's fine, but it's not fine if it comes at the expense of your coworkers. It's not fine when it takes the shape of, I'm better than this other person. That becomes very destructive to the culture. And so we tried very hard to help retrain this person in terms of their attitudes and help them understand that this kind of, not even action, but thinking, that this way of thinking was not conducive to the kind of environment that we wanted to cultivate. But of course, it's very difficult. You can't, this is again the problem with skills can be trained, attitudes are, are very hard to change. So at some point I said, look, if you're giving me 200%, but if that means that everybody else gives me 50%, I'm losing. So we, you know, we, we tried, we did what we could, but at the end we, we had to part ways because if I can't fix the problem, and the sooner you do that, the better the better for him in terms of him being able to go on and find the right environment that will work for him, but also the better for us and the better for the team. And I guess in that you prevent the frustration for the other side as well, because this might be a super bright person, but if they're kind of not getting what they want from the position, they're also getting frustrated. And absolutely. So absolutely. You're, you're helping on both sides. If, yeah. if it's not the right marriage, you know, let's not let's not try to uh, prolong it. Prolong it. Let's <laughs> yeah. let's just, let's deal with the reality on the ground. You know, another example of an employee I had to let go was an employee who gossiped a lot about other employees. Again, gossiping is is poison to a work environment. You gossip about other people. You know, you're you're, you're harming the productivity of that environment. And I couldn't change the person. So I tried changing the whole team. I told the team how destructive it was so that if somebody's approaching you and gossiping about other employees, stop them. Don't allow that to go. That's a cancer that will grow. And one day that's going to be about you. But at the end of the day, it was a behavior we couldn't change. And so we really needed to, to let that person go as well. You know, the thing is that if you get the right team, it's heaven. If you get the right team, everybody loves coming to work. One of the principles in that, that book that I was telling you about, about First Break All the Rules, one of the principles in that book is that people should have a best friend at work. And, and you want not just one best friend, but many best friends. I mean, think about how much better the work environment is when you have friends at work and where you look forward to working with your colleagues. That's about the environment, and that's about getting the team right. So that's part of the obligation that we have in management because we are the ones who are in position to, to make those hires. So we have the ability to kind of cultivate the kind of environment in the workplace, which enables everybody, I think, to have the most fulfilling kind of experience that they can. Fulfilling both in terms of what they achieve, but also fulfilling in terms of the kind of environment that they're working within. Right. And coming back to that watchword nurture, it's the team manager nurturing the, the team members but also from what you're describing there, it's the team members nurturing each other as well. If there is those strong friendships, if there's no gossiping and backbiting, you know, if there's issues, those things are picked up and addressed early on, then it becomes a whole environment of nurturing. You're absolutely right. The nurturing is not just a responsibility on the side of management. It's also a responsibility on the side of the team in terms of nurturing each other. And it is a part of our culture. And in our culture, um, nobody is too good to do a task, including me. 
you know, when, when we're doing building projects, I'm often on site at three o'clock in the morning passing cables. You know, this week I'm working on a new campaign which involves a lot of nitty gritty work. I'm there getting my hands dirty like everybody else on the team. None of us are too good. None of us are too precious. But also there is a sense that, you know, if you can help a colleague, you should help a colleague. And in our culture, if you don't help a colleague, that's, that's a, a poor reflection on you. And so people do expect that they can turn to one another to get help. How do you do this? You know, um, what's the best way for me to approach this? I know this is something you've done before. Can you help me? And that's a part of our culture. All of that is really part and parcel with the kind of environment that we, we try to cultivate. Now, we don't get it right all the time. We have our challenges, just like other organizations do. We have parts that I think we get really right, and there are parts of the organization where I think we're challenged and we have a long way to go still. Mm. And that leads nicely to my next question. So I guess what we've said is that uh, successful management is creating an environment that's nurturing, that, that every member feels nurtured and they nurture each other. In terms of what you find as the biggest leadership challenge, what would you say is the biggest leadership challenge? Well, um, I think... For, for me, as a CEO, and for any CEO, I think the, the, the biggest challenge that we face is how to translate vision into reality. How do you go from who you are and where you are to what you could be? And it is, again, about that ability to have this vision and tackle the impossible and make the impossible reality. This business of uh, translating vision to reality, it's not just something for an organization. It's also something for an individual. As a person, you face that same challenge. You are where you are today. There's some place you'd like to be. How do you get from where you are to where you want to be? I think for me personally, I've been very fortunate in having the Baha'i writings because the Baha'i writings are filled with these metaphors of transformation, going from being a moth into an eagle. And you don't realize it, but there is a method in that. The method, I think, is, is, is summarized in this one quote, which talks about what uh, Shoghi Effendi calls the five dynamics of prayer. And in this idea of prayer is this very idea of translating vision into reality, because that's what a prayer really is. A prayer is an aspiration of something that you wish were different. You know, you wish something were different. How do you make that happen? And when most people think of prayer, you think that the prayer is just the uttering of the words, God help me, you know, help me. And you think that's the prayer. But what the Baha'i writings make clear is that's the start of the process. It's not, that's not the prayer. It's the start of the process of what a prayer is about. So a prayer is about, yes, you finding some space and some, some time and sitting down and, and expressing this need, but then it's about having in the course of your meditation, in the course of your prayer, reaching a decision. So it's not just saying, God help me, it's saying, God help me. And of course, you've thought about it, you've contemplated it, you've weighed it, and now you say, God help me. And in the course of that prayer, you reach a decision. And once you have reached a decision, you have faith and confidence that that is the right decision, that the inspiration has been provided to you, that this is what I'm going to do. 
And then you have faith and confidence that the right resources will come your way. You don't know from where, you don't know from how, but you have faith, so that's the third step. And then you look for, you search for the resources that come your way. You don't know from where, you don't know from how, but as you see them, you seize those resources and you marshal them towards that vision of the prayer that you are working to fulfill and you engage in vigorous action to make it happen. Now, this is metaphorical in a lot of ways, but I can't tell you how practical that guidance is. Most of us, when we have a problem in our lives, we are weighed down by the possibilities. We're weighed down by the burden of the problem. And so we just sit in this endless downward spiral. And what we need to do is we need to grab onto something and rise and marshal the resources to make things happen. And so this, is, this has been the creed that I live by in my business. We have a reputation for innovation. We have a reputation for tackling some impossible task and making it happen. There's a skill to that. It doesn't just happen accidentally. It happens because we make a decision that we're going to do it. We don't know how. You know, I, I tell my team when I have new employees, they're like, oh my God, you're like just jumping off a cliff. And I'm like, yes, we jump off the cliff with faith and confidence that the right things are going to open up before us. And they do. So we don't know how we're going to do it, but we start with simple steps. So we start with the big vision. We often see the end in the beginning and work backwards. What would it take for this to happen? What would it take for that to happen? How do we get just one baby step forward, but in the direction that we need to move? Moving with this confidence, moving with faith, moving you know, with vigorous action to get ourselves to that goal. And so it's a big part of our culture where our attitude is always a can-do attitude of we're going to make things happen, not one of questioning whether we can. Mm, that sounds wonderful. And as you said, we can apply it to our personal lives. Just before we finish off, Duane, I wanted to ask about that, uh, whether it's, you know, as an individual or as an organisation, you know, you use that analogy of prayer and having that vision and how you kind of create, go from where you are to that vision. What about when there might be setbacks? How do you deal with when you have that vision and then there are setbacks? Yeah, you, you are absolutely right. Nothing ever goes to plan. Nothing. <laughs> like it's never like you have a vision and it translates into reality. Because you did it, make it sound like it was going to happen like uh, that. And I, sometimes maybe it does, but it, I imagine well, not. No, no, no. But, but it, it does and it doesn't. The, the way that it does is that, you know, it's that idea that you don't know where the resources are going to come from, right? Right. It's that openness and the receptivity to understanding that you don't know what the game plan is that you're searching, you're constantly searching for the game plan. So you come to a dead alley, you regroup, you rethink. You're like, okay, this, is, this, this, this isn't the way that we're going to get there. How else can we do it? And that's, that's a perpetual part of that business. Uh, Farzam Arbab, who's a, a thinker who I, I greatly admired in my youth, he used to tell me, you need to stop thinking like you are a corporation and you need to start thinking like you're a revolutionary. And he says the difference is the corporation has it all mapped out. You know, it's all mapped out. Here's the plan. You know, you're going to follow this plan to the T, right? He says the revolutionary doesn't know what's going to happen. 
He just is prepared to seize the moment. I don't know how I'm going to get from plan A to plan B. What I know is that my vision is I'm going to get to point B and I'm looking for the resources constantly. I have faith that I will get to point B. And you know, as, as uh, Abdu'l-Bahá, a central figure in the Baha'i writing says, he says, as ye have faith, so share powers and blessings be. And that is true. That is true in your personal life. That is true in business. If you have that faith that things will happen, you don't know how, the challenge is searching for the resources. It's searching for the actions that you need to kind of like take next. You don't know where that's going to come. And many of those will take you down a, a blind alley and you turn around and you go down a different alley. But you continue to have faith and confidence that you will get there. You just don't know what the journey will look like. I love that. And we can definitely apply that to our lives every day. Thank you so much, Duane. As always, it's been wonderful to have you. You've also have now a podcast, Legends <laughs> of Media Research. Yes, uh, yes, thank you. I've really enjoyed listening to your episodes there. So if anyone wants to hear more about media research and uh, some conversations with legends in media research, they can listen, tune into your podcast. Thank you again, Duane. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you also to our listeners and our great team who work behind the scenes to bring mind and soul matters to you. If you wish to keep up to date with new episodes, follow Mind and Soul Matters on Instagram, Facebook, and on your preferred podcast app. You can find us on most platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, YouTube and our website, mindandsoulmatters.podbean.com. All available for free. Think of a few friends that might enjoy Mind and Soul Matters and share with them. If they're new to podcasting, show them how it all works. Thanks again and look forward to your company next time on Mind and Soul Matters.